Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here. Good morning to you, or at least good morning to me as I set off on my commute. And if this podcast uh, doesn't fit into one commute of about 40 minutes, I will finish it up in my afternoon commute. Welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. I am your host, a Renaissance man for the New Dark Age. And today, on this episode, I'm going to be listing and uh, discussing what I've come up with as my list of 10 most important books related to American history that have been very, very important in sort of influencing in various ways my own worldview and view of history in general and view of American history in particular that got me on the path to where I'm at and how I see things and analyze things in terms of the Dangerous History podcast. But before I jump into that, I do have a Patreon shout-out to throw out there. And thank you very much to Salim for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast at patreon.com slash profcj. I very much appreciate the help, Salim. And just as a reminder to all of you, if you think this show brings positive things into your life, value of any sort, knowledge, entertainment, whatever, both, what have you, and you want to help the show out, go ahead and go over to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to donate a set amount per episode of the show that I produce. And if you sign up for any amount of a donation over there, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I uh, produce after you've signed up. In addition, if you sign up for uh, at least $1 per episode, and by all means feel free to sign up for more if you're willing and able to do so, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode donation, you will also have access to special bonus episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast that are only available to my Patreon supporters of a dollar or more per episode. So 
it's a win-win. It's a way for you to say thank you to me for the show and to help me out with my costs and with building and improving the show and compensate me for the ridiculous amount of time I put into this thing. And at the same time, you get a little bit of Extra Dangerous History podcast. About every month to month and a half, I throw out an episode there that's available nowhere else. Some of the episodes I've done in the past have included topics like Samurai and Ninjas and also Operation Northwoods. Like the regular Dangerous History podcast episodes, I like to kind of be all over the place and not, you know, confined to any one particular time period or subject matter for too long. By the way... Uh, Just a few things that I have in mind for upcoming Patreon Dangerous History Podcast bonus episodes. One is an episode all about George de Morinchild, which is an extremely interesting character that raises a lot of questions about mid-20th century American history. I mentioned him a little bit in uh, episode 91, the last episode I did before this one. He's got connections to Lee Harvey Oswald, to the Kennedy assassination, to U.S. intelligence personnel, uh, to the so-called white Russian community in the United States in the mid-20th century, the right-wing anti-communist Russians who fled the Bolsheviks and came here. He also has connections to lots of important kind of power elite people and behind-the-scenes movers and shakers. And let's just put it this way, it's very hard to make a Kennedy conspiracy theory without him featuring prominently in it in some fashion. So, very interesting story there. And another one that I've been thinking I'm going to do as a, um, probably the next one after George DeMorenschilt, as a Patreon bonus episode, is a kind of DHP villains hit piece on Doris Kearns Goodwin. If you heard my interview with Thaddeus Russell a little while back, you probably heard him mention her as an example of kind of a court historian who just writes these slavish, praising pieces about the quote-unquote great presidents and so on. And uh, I heartily agree with Thad's characterization of her. So anyway, I'm I'm thinking I'm going to do an episode about her and her work and uh, what I see as, as sort of the, the problems and dangers of not just her as an individual, but other historians like her. So anyway, these are just things, uh, if you're considering... Signing up to support the show over at Patreon. Those are just some of the things you can expect as bonus episodes in the near future. All right, so on to the meat of episode 92. I've made a top 10 list of books relating to American history that have had the most profound impact on sort of shaping my view on things. In other words, what took a guy who was basically kind of a mild conservatarian type but not wildly outside of the mainstream. I mean, I was outside of the mainstream in terms of I didn't love FDR and the New Deal, but I was nowhere near as radical and anti-state and and as anti-establishment as I am now. What were some of the key books along my journey from sort of mild conservatarianism, you know, basically a conservative who was uh, not not religious and didn't have a problem with gay people and... uh, wanted to end the war on drugs, this is, this is where I would have been at, you know, in late teens, very, very early 20s. And over the course of, I don't know how many years, um, shifted me. Now, there are lots of books that are books on economics or books sort of more on, like, philosophy, political science stuff, sociology. There, there are books along those lines that also played key roles in influencing the basic approach and view of things that I have now. But 
those I will cover in separate, you know, top 10 or top 12 or whatever episodes on, on books. You know, maybe I'll do like top 10 world history books that are important or top 10 economics and financial uh, related books that are important. Maybe I'll do some of those things. But as far as just specifically ones dealing with American history in some fashion, top 10 of those. So here I am in the silver bullet on my way to work, at least as I'm starting this episode. And I've got very minimalist notes. I basically have my list of my 10 books that I'm going to talk about in this episode. At the end, I'll have a few honorable mentions, a few things that that I think are, are important and are, I certainly would recommend you to read if you're curious on these topics, but couldn't quite, just because of personal importance and personal influence, make it into the top 10. I will run through a few of those at the end. But basically, I have very minimal notes. I'm driving, so... Please forgive me if I make any minor errors or if there's if I blank out on something, a name or a date or whatever that I'm looking for. But I think I'll do okay. And then before I jump into these 10 books, I just want to say a thank you to two listeners who independently and almost simultaneously made suggestions that inspired this show. And they are Tim via Facebook and Jason via email. Both of them suggested kind of in, in in different ways, but in practice, they amounted to the same thing, doing some top 10, you know, book episodes of, of various sorts and kind of recommending books that, that I think are important or that have helped steer me on my path and that therefore other people might want to read and benefit from. So thanks to both Tim and to Jason. Um, funny how, I guess it's sort of like how often in, in the big scheme of things, two inventors will invent the same thing at the same time, just almost like there's something in the air. Uh, this is this is a tiny microcosm of that, but it's funny how two listeners came up with the same suggestion at roughly the same time. Anyway, ten dangerous books on U.S. history that have been big influences on me and my thinking. And these are in no particular order. I There's no way I could rank these ten books... In, in a particular order. They, they've all been very important. It just would be impossible. I would never finish it. I would be spending all day moving them around between numbers 1 and 10 and everywhere in between. So I, it's kind of arbitrary. I kind of just mixed them up a little bit. Some of these books are books I've mentioned on the podcast. Some of them I've probably mentioned several times. Perhaps I haven't mentioned all of them, though. I'm not sure. I have a feeling I've probably mentioned all of them at least once, though. But, you know, here's a place where... It's all collected, so if you're interested in doing your own reading and your own research into these things, here are some great starting points. Now, these are about a variety of topics, and you'll probably notice that there are important topics in American history that are not covered, at least not in a, in a focused, concentrated way, by these ten books. And my point is not that, like, here is one book on each important topic of American history— my point is more, each of these ten books gave me some key insights that shook up my paradigm a little bit when I read them and made me rethink what I used to think and eventually led me down the path to where I am now in my intellectual development. So, first one I'll mention is Crisis and Leviathan by Robert Higgs. Many of you who've been in sort of liberty circles for any amount of time and are at all historically inclined have probably heard of this book, many of you who may have read it, but I think to anyone in my ideological ballpark, this is a very important book to understanding American history, 
particularly the 20th century, and how the United States went from having, in the, in the grand scheme of things, a fairly minimalist government in the late 19th century to now where we are today, where we live under the largest, most powerful, most expensive government that has ever existed in the history of our species. The basic thesis of Crisis in Leviathan, and it makes, you know, perfect common sense, but Higgs documents it extensively in great detail. I mean, it's a wonderful piece of scholarship. The fact that this, in a way, even though Higgs has a fairly scholarly tone in in this book, not in some of his other writings, but um, even though he has a fairly scholarly tone in this book, it's a very radical book. It's it's a very anti-state book in a lot of ways. And yet it's published by a major academic publisher. I think it's Oxford University Press, of all places. So in order to get a book that, that is this radical to be published by a publisher like that, like the, the research and everything has to be very, very solid. And I think Higgs has done a great job in this. The basic argument of Crisis in Leviathan is that in the 20th century in American history, you've generally had most of the political class imbued with one form or another of status ideology, of, of a belief in one fashion or another that the way to solve most any significant problem is through government action, especially through federal government action. And so once you have this ideology permeating most of the political class, what's going to happen like clockwork is that every time there is some sort of crisis, whether it's a real genuine crisis or whether it's simply a perception of crisis, the state, and and particularly here we're talking about the federal government, is going to grow in size and power. Furthermore, Higgs argues that when a crisis is over, like let's say there's a war, and then the war comes to an end one way or another, there generally is a cutback somewhat in the size and budget and so on of, of a lot of the government, but that it tends to never come quite down to the level that it was at prior to that crisis. And so when the next crisis come al- comes along, the government is starting from a larger starting point, a more powerful starting point, and so then it grows even more. And you can imagine this, you know, long-term in your head, the long-term trend is up, even though there might be temporary downturns in the aftermath of a particular crisis. And the number one crisis, of course, is war. By the way, I'll just make one quick honorable mention here. It's not specifically an American history book. It actually is more to do with European history, but it does have a chapter on American history that jives very much with Higgs's work, is Bruce Porter, War and the Rise of the State. That's not on this list because it's not a America-centric book, but certainly if I was doing top 10 books of, I don't know, modern world history, that would be a strong contender for that list. Now, this phenomenon I, I described a moment ago of... After the crisis, the state shrinks somewhat in its size and expense and powers, but it never quite shrinks back to what it was before that crisis. Higgs refers to as the ratchet effect. So, you know, we can all then picture that. I think it's a wonderful term. We can all picture in our heads how that works, right? Kind of two steps up, crisis over, one step down. Next crisis, two steps up, that crisis over, one step down, so to speak. And he's got a lot of just great nuts and bolts. I mean, facts and figures and numbers and, you know, here's this agency being created. Here's this department adding another sub-department to itself, etc. So Crisis in Leviathan by Robert Higgs. And that was a big influence on me because it really helped me to understand the magnitude 
of the growth of government throughout the 20th century in the United States, and it really helped me understand how war in particular is such a huge enabler to government growth, and it was another thing, this book, that helped me shed what was left of my last little bits of of conservative attitudes. Basically, watching the debacle of America's war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, at the same time I started reading things like Crisis and Leviathan, the last little inkling I had of, of any support for American wars started to go pretty quickly. Next book I would put on this list is The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Very few people understand what the Federal Reserve is, where it really came from, what its real purpose is. Most people either know nothing about it at all, or if they do know something, they're just repeating what some pro-Fed economics teacher or history teacher told them once, you know, in 11th grade, that the Federal Reserve is there to make sure our economy keeps working fine and keep everything steady and make sure there's not too much unemployment or inflation and keep the economy balanced and all this sort of nonsense, which most people will just never even question. But Creature from Jekyll Island goes into it and really pulls back the curtain on a lot of this stuff. Now, there are other good books about the Federal Reserve and its history for sure, but what I like about Creature from Jekyll Island is it's a great overview that gives the big picture of things, including going back and looking at the the prior uh, central banks in American history and so on. And it really gives you an understanding of where this, this institution came from and what it's really for. And essentially, it's for bailing out the, the bankster class, and then it also provides benefits to the government itself, which is, it has this, it has this weird uh, symbiotic relationship with the government. It's a strange thing that's not quite private and not quite public, and it's kind of like the worst elements of both combined. Sometimes you'll hear people criticize the Federal Reserve because it's private, like as if that in and of itself is a bad thing. Well, if it was a truly private entity, it wouldn't be given any powers and privileges and what have you by the government. I mean, a, a truly private instigator of, uh, or creator of currency couldn't do most of what the Federal Reserve does to pull levers on the economy and manipulate it. Look at Bitcoin, right? There's private creation of basically, for functional purposes, a currency. And it's not causing a business cycle that drags the globe into depression. It's not causing like wild inflation and economic problems. It's not manipulating interest rates in the economy as, as a whole. So the fact that the Federal Reserve is kind of private-ish in a way, the, to me, the root of, of the real problem is that it's given all these powers and privileges and monopolies by the state. Be that as it may, it then has the ability to bestow private profits and then the losses to the, the banks and, and the elite of the economy, it's able to socialize those onto the country at large. And because America's dollar is the reserve currency of most of the world still, a lot of those, those nasty side effects cause problems around the world. Now, a few disclaimers. I, I don't agree with J. Edward Griffin on everything. He has some proposals for solutions of how to deal with the Fed and how to deal with the overall collectivist mindset that just tactically I don't agree with. He's not a full-blown anarchist as far as I know. So some of his proposed solutions involve, you know, having good pro-liberty people take over the state and and reform things. I'm I'm pretty skeptical these days and have been for the last number of years that that's even possible. 
in addition, there's a, there's a few things in Creature from Jekyll Island, and I don't remember off the top of my head what they were, but there's a few things in Creature from Jekyll Island that are a little bit little bit more conspiracy-oriented than, than I'm quite willing to go. But for the most part, I, I don't think this book falls into that category. I think for the most part, it's quite well-researched and is based on my research into other books, including more kind of mainstream scholarly books that are just honest about the Fed. It's, it's a good, solid book. I'll also mention, G. Ed Griffin has done some, some work on other topics that I don't quite agree with, that I, that I think are a little bit a little bit out there. But the fact that he's done some work on some other topics that I don't quite buy, to me, does not invalidate the fact that Creature from Jekyll Island is, for the most part, a very solid, well-researched book that does a great job of opening your eyes to what the Federal Reserve really is and what it's really for. So that's why I would put it on my list. I had already started to become familiar with Austrian economics a little bit before I discovered this book, but... It was great building on the Austrian economics I'd been learning to then have this book that really takes you through the history of central banking in the United States. So it definitely had a powerful influence on me and helping me to see the Federal Reserve for what it is. Third book on the list is from the New Left historian William Appleman Williams, who is one of the New Left historians that I did a podcast on a while back, Three Leftist Historians Every Libertarian Should Read, writing in the mid-20th century, and, I, and, and he continued to write um, for, for decades until his death, and I would recommend anything written by William Appleman Williams I think is worth reading. He's a very insightful guy, even though he's basically a leftist, he's by no means a doctrinaire American liberal, very independent in a lot of ways, has at least some anarchist tendencies in him, He's great, as a lot of the New Left historians were, at exposing corporatism, at exposing the cronyism between the government and corporations. And in particular, he did a lot of great work on how that intersects with American foreign policy. And the book of his that I would recommend on this list, and again, I would recommend anything he's written, it's worth reading, but the one that's probably his most important, influential, and kind of his first big hit is... The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. This is a book I was first exposed to in graduate school. I took one of, one of the better classes I took in graduate school in my first semester in graduate school was on 20th century American foreign policy. And it was taught by one of the better teachers I had that first semester, a, a very, very engaging and very just, you know, nice and likable and funny, funny professor. And a guy who was very much a leftist. Now, at the time, I didn't quite get a lot of what he was saying because I still had, I still had some right-wing vestiges in my own mind. And so a lot of the things that he was telling us and that the books we were reading were telling us, at the time, I kind of confirmation biased away from, at least from my conscious mind. And so that was true. The, fir- the first time I read The Tragedy of American Diplomacy... I didn't I didn't get it. I, I didn't get it. It just didn't it was too different from my confirmation bias as it existed at that time that a lot of the points Williams was making went over my head. I just sort of instinctively uh brushed them aside as well, that's just, you know, liberal bias or whatever. And I didn't grasp a lot of what Williams was really saying. And that his pro his points were often much more profound and subtle than just 
here's a cheerleader for the Democrats or something. And interestingly, it was only later as I started to go in a more Rothbardian direction that I sort of rediscovered tragedy of American diplomacy and William Eppelman Williams as I started to really become taken in by a lot of Murray Rothbard's work. And then I came across Rothbard saying positive things about William Appleman Williams and some other libertarian intellectuals as well. I went back and I reread Tragedy of American Diplomacy, and it was just night and day. All of a sudden, I'm like, holy cow, this is actually really important, profound stuff. And then I read some other stuff by Williams and, and realized that he is a much more complex and independent thinker than you might realize at first glance, especially if you're still viewing the world partially through Republican-tinted glasses. And the same is true of that professor that I had for American diplomatic history. It was years later that I, I eventually realized I actually agreed with him quite a lot on questions of American foreign policy history. And sometimes I feel like I wish I could retake that class knowing what I know now and seeing things the way I see them now, um, because I probably would have gotten more out of it than I did. Not to say that it, I think it made an impact somewhere deep down. A lot of the things we read and the evidence we came across and the arguments we explored, I think it did have an impact. But it was one of those things like there was a delay. It wasn't until a few years after graduate school that I really realized the, the points that that professor had made and that William Appleman Williams had made. Basically, tragedy of American diplomacy is looking at American foreign policy from the late 19th century to about mid-20th century, uh, give or take. And he, he makes the argument that the open door notes that the U.S. government published in regards to China in the 1890s were very, very important and influential on American foreign policy ever since. And really kind of set the mold for the next, you know, half century or more of American foreign policy. What the open door note said, a simplified version, is this is a time when China was quite weak. It was still nominally an independent country, a sovereign country with its own government, but it was weak as its, its state was weak and couldn't quite control itself. And so this allowed an opportunity for outside imperialists. No one could take over China outright because it was so vast. But what happened was that several areas of China were carved out into what were called spheres of influence, wherein some outside power was really running the show in that area. So there was a, a British area in China, there was a Russian area in China, and so on and so forth. Most of the major imperial powers of the 1890s had, had a little bit of China that they controlled. Now, the U.S. government did not. But the U.S. government, under President McKinley and Secretary of State John Hay, published these policy documents called the Open Door Notes, in which the United States said that the United States wanted every country to have equal access to China for trading purposes. And this is whether the imperial powers there wanted it or not, and also whether the Chinese government wanted it or not. And so the idea is to kind of use the United States government in order to force the Chinese to buy American products, whether they wanted to or not. So it's a case of corporate interests using the state to socialize the costs of opening up markets for them by force if necessary. And of course, even though the United States did not have a sphere of influence in China, the United States sent troops to put down the so-called Boxer Rebellion in the 1890s. 
And so there you had American troops fighting alongside British and French and German and Russian troops, crushing a Chinese nationalist uprising. And there are other cases in the late 19th, early 20th century of the U.S. government being the errand boy for American corporations going in and forcing other countries to buy their crap, whether those countries and those people really wanted to or not. Gunboat diplomacy, it's sometimes, I think, called at this time. So it's... It's something, it's, at first it seems like, oh, they're trying to spread free trade, but they're really not trying to spread free trade. They're trying to force China and then other countries to be buyers of American products. At the same time, the United States had massively high tariffs on foreign goods to keep them out. And so it wasn't even like the United States was trying to push fair trade, which, or sorry, not fair trade, uh, free trade, which the British Empire actually kind of was at the time. The British Empire was mostly pretty free trade in the late 19th century, and the British government had virtually no tariffs on, on goods coming from outside the empire into Britain. Even if it was a country that had tariffs against British goods, the British were just, you know, they would just stick to free trade on their end. Well, the U.S. government wasn't doing that. Now, Williams carries this concept of the open door then forward into American history and finds it as sort of a root cause of a lot of American wars and foreign policy decisions ever since. And you can see it to an, ex to an extent today in things like NAFTA and Trans-Pacific, Trans whatever the hell it is, and all these managed trade deals, and a lot of these international, you know, the policies that are pushed for by, by the Bilderbergs and the Rockefeller people and the Rothschild people, it's similar sorts of things, and all the economic angles for recent wars. And Williams connects this, this open-door concept to the origins of the Cold War and made an argument very radical when he first made it, I think, back in the 50s, that, that really America was more to blame for the Cold War happening than the Soviets. So it's a great starting point to understanding the, the financial and economic side of American foreign policy and why leaders are doing what they're doing. And they talk about spreading democracy and human rights and so on. But oftentimes, if you just nick the surface a little bit, you're looking at various corporate interests that are really driving American foreign policy. And so tragedy of American diplomacy is on this list because it was a key thing in waking me up to this phenomenon. Oh, and I'll also just throw in there the, the tragedy, as William Appleman Williams sees it, is that in the pursuit of this corporatist, open-door trade policy backed up by force if necessary, that the United States has abandoned its commitment, which you can find all the way back in the Declaration of Independence, to the idea of national self-determination, the idea that a group of people has the right to decide for themselves what type of government they would want to live under. And as, as Williams shows, in regard to especially the so-called third world, in regard to Latin America, Africa, Asia, and so on, the United States has for a long time been quite happy to play God with regimes in other parts of the world. So, for example, a democratically elected regime in Latin America starts to do things that American corporations don't like, the United States goes in there, overthrows it, and installs a pro-American government and pro-American corporate uh, dictator, thereby betraying, the U.S. government betraying its own alleged 
uh, belief in national self-determination and democracy and all that stuff. So things like what I covered in the Uncle Sam versus Democracy stuff that I did a long time ago, looking at U.S. government overthrowing democratic regimes in Iran and in Guatemala in the 1950s. And that's happened countless times, both before that and after that, in various parts of the world. So William Appleman Williams' tragedy of American diplomacy in the pursuit of these corporatist uh, economic policies, the U.S. government has turned its back on some of the aspects of its alleged values that are what, what many people would consider like the least bad of the uh, elements of the American official ideology. You know, the ideas of the Declaration of Independence. Those go by the wayside in the name of corporate profits. The next Dangerous History book that's on my list is A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. And this is another one that I mentioned Howard Zinn and this book in particular on my episode about three leftist historians every libertarian should read. So I'll, I'll link back to that episode if you've not listened to it in the show notes for this episode. This is one I'm glad that I came to late in my intellectual development because I think that this is a book that if I had read it back when I was in college or even in grad school, I probably wouldn't have been open to a lot of the points that uh, Zinn is making in the book. I would have been even more confirmation biased against that book than I would have been against William Appleman Williams' Tragedy of American Diplomacy. I mean, this is a book I had heard of when I was in college and in graduate school, but I never actually read it at the time. I think I just sort of mentally checked it off as, you know, left-wing propaganda, uh, which you could argue in, in in some aspects it kind of is, but it's... It's a lot more subtle than that. And again, Zinn has a little bit more of an anarchist streak in him than than does like a typical doctrinaire mainstream leftist. He's certainly no shill for the Democratic Party. And the fact that I actually sat down and read this book not too many years ago for the first time, and that by that point in my intellectual development, I already had become staunchly anti-war, I already had become basically an anarchist, and I already had really realized and digested the significance of the fact that, yeah, there have been a lot of people throughout American history who have been genuinely oppressed. The fact that I had already come that far in my development meant that when I actually sat down and read People's History of the United States, I really grasped the significance of a lot of the points that Zinn was making, and it actually did have a big impact on me. People's History of the United States is simply an an attempt to give an overview of American history from the point of view of various groups of people who have been traditionally marginalized or held back or whatever um, in society and then also have, in traditional history narratives, been mostly left out of the story. So in the case of American history, that would be people like blacks, Indians, the poor, Hispanics, um, in many respects women for that matter, as well as just political uh, dissidents and radicals and things like that. And so when you flip the vantage point around and look at American history from the point of view of these people, it's a very different narrative than if you just tell the story looking at mostly upper and occasionally middle class white males. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Now, there's a lot of people who don't want to hear this because 
they they worry that like you have to become PC principal, right? That you've got to become like a way over the top PC leftist who who hates white privilege and all this sort of thing. And as on so many things, like with the conspiracy theories and assassinations, I end up in this awkward middle of the road place, which I think is is following the truth as I see it. But I'm in a place where. I look back and go, yeah, a lot of these people were legitimately oppressed, and, and many of them still are to an extent today, and certainly there are negative legacies of that experience to many of these different groups today. Now, I don't think that that then justifies like the extreme PC principle type uh, behavior and mindset, but I think there, there's some sort of a middle ground where you you acknowledge and understand the reality of a lot of, a lot of this history, and you're against that sort of thing uh, continuing today and do what you can at the same time. I'm a white heterosexual male. I don't hate myself because in the past, some white heterosexual males have oppressed people who were not like them. Like I had nothing to do with it. What I think Zinn's book really does and does very, very well, I should say is he exposes power and the downside of power. And very often, he's not just pointing the finger at at the wealthy and at corporations, though, of course, they're there. But very often, he does point out the state has been complicit in a lot of these things. So I give him credit for that. The next book is one that, again, I mentioned in my Three Leftist Historians episode a while back. And that's why I put the, I didn't put these books in any particular order, you know, one through ten. But these three ended up next to each other because I thought of them all more or less simultaneously because they were books I had already done episodes about. Gabriel Kolko's Triumph of Conservatism. This book is very important as a piece of re- revisionist history, looking especially at American economic and political developments around the late 19th, early 20th century. Murray Rothbard was a big fan of this book and of several other related ones Colco did as well. Now, that might seem weird considering Murray Rothbard was a free market anarchist and Gabriel Colco was essentially some sort of a Marxist or semi-Marxist communist or something like that, at the very least a socialist. But the connection is that, that what Colco was doing was pointing out that the American system is not really free market, it's, it's corporatist. Large business firms get get in bed with the government and vice versa, and then use regulations and things to rig the the economy in their favor. Now, where Rothbard and Kolko would differ is on their their solutions to this problem. Kolko would probably say, no doubt, that the solution to this problem is to have just full blown socialism. Rothbard's solution is to have full blown full blown free market, a truly freed market. But nonetheless, they shared the common ground of understanding what was wrong with the American economy as being not due to a true free market system being in place. So what Colco did with this book, and this is uh, originally published, I think, over 50 years ago, is he showed through a lot of evidence that the standard narrative that most people believed about turn-of-the-century American political and economic history, and this is a narrative that many people still believe today, even though Colco and others who follow in his footsteps have busted it pretty well, I think, is that the standard narrative you've been given, which is along the lines of, well, around the turn of the century, you know, a little over 100 years ago, the American economy 
was becoming less competitive, and there was a just a natural tendency because of the craziness of the free market for monopolies to start emerging and taking over industries. And that thankfully, high-minded progressive reformers who were completely unself-interested and just wanted to help the little guy and do what's right for the public interest, luckily a lot of these progressive reformers stepped in and passed all these uh, programs and regulations and things like that that made things more fair, that regulated big business in such a way that it prevented big business from screwing their smaller competitors and harming consumers and blah, 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 blah. And Colco shows pretty much how every part of that is nonsense, is not really what happened. In fact, most industries in the American economy in the late 19th century were becoming more competitive, not less. Every year there were more firms in each given industry, not less. The larger firms were having year-to-year harder time competing. And it was actually an attempt to cartelize those industries to make them less competitive, to make it harder for upstarts to get in on the action, that motivated the big businesses themselves to want regulation, to want things like the Interstate Commerce Commission for the railroads, or the meatpacking regulations for the meatpacking industry. It was the larger firms themselves who wanted those programs and those regulations because they imposed annoying fixed costs that would be proportionately much harder for smaller and or newer companies to deal with than for bigger, more established firms to deal with. Now, some of the progressive politicians that pushed these reforms in the political sphere, I think, knew they were essentially working for big business. Of course, they always were trying to sell these reforms to the public as, oh, this is for your own good to protect you from big business. I think some of the progressives understood that they were working for big business in these reforms and had no problem with it. Others, I think, may have been useful idiots and really thought, that these reforms were were designed to and were going to help the consumer and help um, the smaller companies compete in, in a given industry. But regardless of their intentions, the effect has been exactly what big business wanted, which is less competition. So anyway, Colco's great on that. He's written a number of other books that are all very good. Uh, I don't obviously agree with every single argument he ever makes, but I think he busts a lot of important myths not just in Triumph of Conservatism, but it's like probably his first big hit and his most important and central work. The next book on my list is The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. This is a kind of obscure book, at least today. It's little known. It's hard to track down a copy, and usually you'll end up paying decent money for a pretty beat-up old you know, paperback from the 70s or something. But I, I did manage to track down one reasonably priced copy for myself that I now have in my stash. And I think it's worth checking out if you're interested in a very revisionist and power elite-centered look at what's really going on in the American power elite in the mid-20th century. Carl Oglesby, by the way, was a new left activist. I think he was involved in maybe SDS or some of those other new left groups that were big in American colleges in the 60s. But he was one of the people that's what I consider um, the the kind of, quote-unquote, from my perspective, good new left, meaning that he's, he's very anti-state in addition to being anti-war and that sort of thing and, you know, against, against racism and whatever. He's also, in, in many ways, anti-state. So, in fact, Murray Rothbard was a big fan of Oglesby. It's through 
some of Rothbard's writings that I discovered this book in the first place. The Yankee and Cowboy War. And maybe I'll do another episode down the road on sort of this book and this whole concept and how it applies to American history kind of in the 60s and 70s at least. It's an interesting paradigm through which to take a new look at what's going on in the higher levels of American power in the mid-20th century. Now, from about the 1880s or 90s through World War II, the big power elite rivalry, far more important than Republican versus Democrat, was, as I mentioned last episode, Morgan versus Rockefeller. When you're trying to understand what powerful people in the U.S. government are doing and why they're doing it, that's, that's generally more important than Republican versus Democrat. During and immediately after World War II, however, the Morgan and Rockefeller gangs essentially merged. They started working together. By that point, the Rockefellers had gotten the upper hand. The Morgans had been more dominant in the 19-teens and 20s. And then in the 30s and 40s, the Rockefeller group, for a variety of reasons, sort of got the upper hand economically and politically. And uh, during and, and after World War II, these two factions started to merge more. You find them... Um, you know, becoming business partners, which they never would have before. You find them socializing and even intermarrying with each other. Certain companies that were one block get bought and merged by the other. And you even find things like the Council on Foreign Relations, which was initially dominated by Morgan people, starts to be more and more um, run by the Rockefellers, with the Morgan people still there, but now as sort of like junior partners. This is the group, by the way, that gets eventually known in American political discourse as the Eastern Establishment. This is what happens when, when the Morgan Gang and the Rockefeller Gang team up. They become what people eventually refer to as the Eastern Establishment. So when you hear, for example, Richard Nixon lamenting the, the Eastern Establishment in Republican Party politics, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about these Rockefeller and Morgan people, these blue bloods who went to the Ivy League and so on. Now, what Oglesby, his, his paradigm for like understanding primarily the 60s and 70s is that there's what he calls a Yankee-Cowboy war going on. And the Yankees are his term for that Eastern establishment, those Ivy League-educated blue bloods. Those are your Yankees. And then you've got an upstart group that really starts to um, become prominent and influential after World War II that... Oglesby calls the Cowboys. The Cowboys are people from the region called the Southern Rim of the United States. It's basically just the states along the bottom part of the United States. And the main like centerpieces of the Cowboy political faction are the Sunbelt states, the states that after World War II suddenly have massive booms in terms of population and economy. For a variety of reasons, you know, everything from air conditioning to interstate highways to increasing military industrial complex stuff in the South and Southwest. And the real centerpieces of this boom in the Southern Rim are Florida, Texas, and California. And to a lesser extent, some of the rest of the Southwest, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. Some might make a case that some of the other southeastern states would be thrown in, maybe Georgia, Louisiana. Um, but the states that have the most dramatic growth and expansion in their economic and political pull are California, Texas, and Florida after World War II. And the Cowboys are the economic and political kind of nouveau riche, the, the newly rich, newly elite people who come out of those states. They have a different business background than the Yankees. 
they tend to not be these blue blood Ivy League people. They're more likely to be first or second generation wealthy. And so when you're looking at prominent politicians in the 50s and especially in the 60s and 70s, Oglesby says, you've got this Yankee cowboy rivalry going on that is more important than Republican versus Democrat. There are Yankees in both political parties and there are cowboys in both political parties. And very often when you're trying to understand why, you know, two people of the same party can't get along with each other, but then you see one of them getting along fine with someone from the opposite party, very often it's because they're the same, they're on the same team in regards to this Yankee versus cowboy rivalry. So just to list some of the um, some of the prominent political leaders of this time period that that Oglesby says are, you know, one or the other. Richard Nixon is a cowboy. Lyndon Johnson is a cowboy. Barry Goldwater is a cowboy. The Rockefellers, including Nelson Rockefeller, who, you know, came relatively close to to being the Republican nominees nominee for president in 64 against who? Cowboy Barry Goldwater, who beat him. Nelson Rockefeller, Yankee. John F. Kennedy. Yankee. So these more kind of old line people, especially from the Northeast and to a lesser extent from kind of the the um, Great Lakes states, Yankees, that's who you look at the business interest behind them. And it's more likely to be these sort of Rockefeller and Morgan affiliated companies. And then these prominent politicians coming from the Sun Belt, from the Southern Rim, Cowboys. Now, neither of these groups are, are really libertarian. The cowboys will often have more libertarian-ish rhetoric, but in fact, in practice, when it comes down to policy, they're very much statist as well. But the Yankees and cowboys have different opinions on what America's priority should be in terms of foreign policy. Um, none of them are really anti-war per se, but they might differ on where and over what they're willing to fight. And if I remember right, I think that it's according to Oglesby in the early days of the Kennedy administration, that the Yankees and Cowboys really start to turn on each other. Whereas in the 50s, they had had occasional sorts of rivalries, but they had mostly teamed up together to get the old early Cold War up and running because they both were for the Cold War, they both benefited from the Cold War. But then as things went on, they started to have divergent preferences and interests. And so, for example... The Cowboys and Yankees initially both were interested in trying to overthrow Castro. But then when it didn't work out as as easily as they thought, the Yankees were more quick to sort of want to move on from there. So it was it was the Yankees within Kennedy's administration who were the ones who supported peacefully resolving the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, and before that not sending in conventional troops to invade Cuba over the Bay of Pigs incident. Meanwhile, there were cowboys in his administration, even though he and, and most of his right-hand men were, were um, Yankees. There were cowboys. There was Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Um, some of the people running the military at the time were essentially cowboys. And then there were powerful cowboys, including members of Kennedy's own party, who were in Congress. So the, the theory, and, and Oglesby connects this whole rivalry to the Kennedy assassination which he believes in in a version of the of of the conspiracy theory, I think with good reason, and then Watergate, which he thinks is not quite what you think it is, that these two major events in American political history in the sixties and seventies both are derived from this Yankee cowboy conflict that's going on, and a lot of people simply don't see it because they're so distracted by Republican versus Democrat elephant versus donkey that they don't see what's really going on is this Yankee Cowboy War. So according to Oglesby's theory, 
The assassination of Kennedy, if his version is correct, was essentially a cowboy hit. Kennedy was starting to get in the way um, too dramatically of what what things the cowboys wanted uh, to happen as far as really amping up the Vietnam War even more and um, being more aggressive against Castro, being more aggressive uh, elsewhere in Asia and Latin America. The Yankees, though they, they were still pursuing the Cold War, were not doing it nearly as aggressively enough in the places that the Cowboys wanted them to do it. And so Oglesby argues that, that Kennedy, the hit on Kennedy was essentially a Cowboy takedown of this Yankee who's in their way. And when Kennedy dies, who replaces him? Lyndon Johnson, a quintessential Cowboy. And among other things, Lyndon Johnson drastically escalates America's involvement in Vietnam within about one year of Kennedy's death. Lyndon Johnson, because of the war, obviously is unable to run for any more terms, but who does end up replacing him? By the way, after Yankee Robert Kennedy gets killed in 1968 and taken out of the picture, interestingly, is Richard Nixon a cowboy. So your, your Texas cowboy gets replaced by a California cowboy. They have some differences on domestic matters, but not nearly as, as much as, as you might think. When you really dig into it, Nixon was a fairly big government liberal Republican. Not that different from Lyndon Johnson with his great society. But they had the cowboy thing in common of, of wanting to still be aggressive in, in Southeast Asia. And so Oglesby argues that Watergate was essentially a political takedown of Richard Nixon, Rather than using an assassination, they use a political scandal to take him out. It's a counterattack by the Yankees. And the guy who replaces Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, is much more of a Yankee. You look at his, his connections, he's Ivy League educated, uh, he had been you know, a member of the Warren Commission and all this sort of stuff. He, he had much more of an establishment background than did um, Richard Nixon. So anyway, that book was important to me because even though... Perhaps all the arguments that, that Oglesby makes aren't 100% proven. They're certainly plausible, and it was a matter of looking at history through a different paradigm. When all you've ever done is looked at history through the paradigm of Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, you miss a lot of things. And when you put on these other glasses for a while and you look at it, huh, Yankee versus Cowboy, sort of Northeast versus Southern Rim, Ivy League versus New Rich, right? What's going on? All of a sudden, some things make sense that never made sense before, and also you start to see certain things that you never quite noticed before. So anyway, I think it's a very worthwhile book simply from the standpoint of challenging your perceptions of what's really going on by offering an alternative lens through which to view a lot of the major events of the mid-20th century. And I think it's a sadly underappreciated book. It's got a lot of stuff in it that might seem dated, talking about the Warren Commission or what have you, but nonetheless, I still think that it's quite relevant. Book number seven, in no particular order, is one that many of you have probably heard of if you've been involved in radical pro-liberty circles for any length of time, and that is The Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gatto. This was another book that I was fortunate to discover at right about the right time. And I'm not even 100% sure where I first heard of this book. But it was probably about maybe seven, eight years ago, something like that, that somehow or other I just heard a little mention somewhere of this book that had all this deep research about what were really some of the ideas and motivations behind the American public school system. 
And it was one of those things, like so many, where I probably jotted it down on a post-it and tucked it away and didn't come back to it for some time. And probably one day I was like, well, eh, let me see if I can look this thing up. And so I looked it up. It was hard to find a copy at the time. I think it was it had been a while since the first edition and they hadn't done a second edition yet or something like that. So it's kind of hard to find a, a good copy for a decent price. But then I found, and I don't know if this is still the case, maybe it is, but at that time, Gatto had posted, I think, almost all of the book online for free. So as long as you were willing to just read it on the screen or, or print it up, uh, which I did, actually, because this was back when I still just hadn't made the transition to reading long things on the screen. I think I actually just would print up one chapter at a time and read it, just like staple it together. And I read, I don't know, not the whole book, but a decent portion of the book that way. And it was another one of these paradigm-shifting books. It was another one of these where it's like you're putting on your glasses the first time you've been diagnosed with nearsightedness, and you go to the eye doctor and he's got your new glasses and he puts them on you and you're like, holy crap, I didn't realize that the images were that sharp. Now, are there some things that uh, I think Gatto interprets in a way that's a little bit different from how I would? Yeah. Are there some criticisms of, of his uh, his research and documentation methods and whatever? Yes and no. I mean, it's it's not a book that's intended for publication in some academic journal or whatever. So the foot, he doesn't have, at least in the, in the edition I ended up buying when I did finally buy an actual book copy of it, not everything is, uh, you know, sup- superbly footnoted and documented, but most things have references, and you can go look these things up. A lot of it these days is available online for free at various places, so you can look up these primary sources that he mentions. And while there may be a few details that I think uh, he may get wrong or, or things that I just disagree with a little bit, his interpretation, nonetheless, I think it's still a magnificent book and is very important to understanding how the schooling system in America got to be where it is today. It's It's the result of choices made by people over the last hundred plus years and oftentimes these are people that have what we might consider today not the best of intentions even when it's intentions that in their own minds they might have thought were, were good to make society better but they had this idea of making society better by basically social engineering children in order to make them more obedient and compliant and predictable this importation primarily of the prussian school system which which gatto does uh, document so well is at the root of this schooling system that we have, and that, frankly, to be honest with you, most developed countries today have basically this model still as the centerpiece of their schooling system. And, in fact, even most private schools are really not much different. The private schools that follow the conventional model, obviously, if it's like a Montessori school or something else that's, that's way different, that's another, that's another story. But most conventional private schools are, you know, they might be marginally better run or whatever, but their overall approach to to schooling and education is not fundamentally different from most public schools. It's just the propaganda might be a little bit different. You know, instead of just telling you to to worship and obey your government, they might say worship and obey your government and, you know, whatever religion the school is or something. But Underground History of American Education, I, I highly recommend, if you've not already read it, to really understand the, the gravity, the severity of education in America and why it is the way it is. Gatto, if you don't know, was a New York public school teacher for something like 30 years. He won New York City and New York State Teacher of the Year, I think possibly even multiple times. 
He was a guy that was trotted out as like a hero public school teacher who made a positive difference in kids' lives. And then after all those years of teaching, he resigns and writes something I think was published in Wall Street Journal or something like that, basically saying, I'm quitting because I can't keep doing a job where I'm damaging children. And this is a guy who's considered, by conventional standards, a great public school teacher. But he had noticed all the problems with the system and and how it was applied to kids and started to do his own research into where these notions came from and eventually became disillusioned and and started writing books and, and speaking. So this is a guy who worked inside the system for three decades and then did all this research into where did the system come from in the first place. And that was one of those ones that resonated with me. I went to public school my whole life and my experience wasn't terrible. But that said, my experience was, on the whole, more more negative than positive. I certainly had more teachers I'd consider mediocre to bad than the handful of excellent ones I had who stood out like turds in a punch bowl. But, you know, even as someone who didn't have an absolutely awful public school experience, who had kind of a blah one, still, reading Underground History of American Education made me understand more, like, what had happened to me there and why things played out the way they did so often in in the public school setting. The next book, and this is number eight on my list, again, these are really in no particular order as far as ranking or whatever, but eighth book on my list that had a big effect on how I look at American history is Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Free Men by Jeffrey Hummel. Hummel is, as far as I recall, actually an economist by by education and, and by, you know, degrees and whatever. But nonetheless, this is like an excellent work of history, and while he certainly touches on some economic aspects of things, it's, it's by no means an economic-only interpretation of the Civil War and related issues. This book is, in my opinion, simply the best single, relatively concise book that provides an overview of the American Civil War and like most of the important issues in and around it. So it even has a pretty good coverage, again, fairly concise, but but good, of the lead-up to the Civil War and the various political issues that led up over the course of decades to eventually that conflict breaking out. I think this is one of the most balanced books on the Civil War out there. And by balanced, I don't mean that Hummel doesn't have his own point of view on things, but that he's able to fairly and rationally look at different questions separate from each other without combining them together. So, for example, there's often a dichotomy over whether you think Lincoln and the Union war effort is pure as the driven snow, and therefore the Confederates are are evil people motivated only by bad uh, motives like wanting to protect slavery, or you're someone who acknowledges the dark side of Lincoln and the Union war effort, who acknowledges that the Confederates had some valid grievances... But then you turned a blind eye to the fact that a lot of the Confederate leaders were ardently pro-slavery and were motivated by wanting to protect uh, slavery as an institution. There's a lot of people out there that when they discover some of the truth about, about the, the dark side of Lincoln and of the Union war effort in general, they then knee-jerk to the opposite extreme of the Confederates are good guys. And I don't think it's that simple. And Hummel does a great job of sussing out all the complexities of this war and all the surrounding issues without being forced into any one way or the other dichotomy. So, for example, Hummel makes the the question of the Civil War and its justification and so on, 
he makes it a little bit more nuanced than most people who are either, you know, on one side or the other would do. Hummel separates the war itself into two questions, and it's something along the lines of, why did the South secede, is one question, but then he separates into, like, a completely separate question, why was the North willing to go to war to prevent them from seceding? And Hummel comes to the conclusion, and by the way, Hummel is, is a libertarian, as far as I know. He's, he's spoken at the Mises Institute and contributed to um, some Mises Institute books and so on. So he's not reflexively pro-Lincoln, far from it. But he doesn't get sucked into the trap of thinking that must mean the Confederates are all good guys. Hummel argues that the Southern leadership, because the political elite were plantation owners in the South... It's true that most Southern whites didn't own slaves, but it's also true that most Southern whites who rose to positions of political power did, because they were the elite. Hummel argues that in the case of why did the South secede, that in fact a desire to protect slavery was probably the largest motivating factor, not the only one, but probably the strongest one in their decision, especially when you're looking at the deep South states of you know, Georgia, South Carolina, etc., the, the ones that seceded first. Alabama, Louisiana, that the leaders of those states, slavery was the major factor in their minds. But then there's the question of, did the North go to war because they just wanted to free those slaves so badly? Or were there other reasons that the North went to war against the South and wouldn't let them exit the Union? And to this, Hummel argues that the North, their main reasons for going to war was not to free those slaves in the South, but for other reasons, and that slavery was, I think, largely a, a, a positive byproduct of the war, but it wasn't the Union government's main concern, including, including Lincoln, wasn't his main concern. So I really appreciate Hummel's analysis there, and I think he does a good job backing it up, because it, it's basically saying, look, the con- neither side had good motives. Neither side had good motives. And you have to keep in mind that the Union did some bad things in terms of like, you know, government action and suppression of civil liberties and taxes and other economic controls during the war and military conscription. But the fact of the matter is the Confederate government did those same things as well. In fact, the Confederate government, if anything, went even more down the road towards socialism during the war years than the Union government did. Now, it's also different when you're looking at the, the average poor Confederate soldier, why is he fighting? Now, in some cases, it's because he's drafted, he had no choice. But those, those poor white Southerners who volunteered for the Confederate Army, what motivated them is probably, that probably has more to do with the outsiders, the Yankees coming into their state to, to break stuff and burn towns and kill people, would cause a poor white Southerner who didn't own any slaves, and most Confederate soldiers came from poor non-slave-owning families, to be willing to fight simply to protect his home. So these questions are very complex, but I think Hummel does a great job of laying out the controversies over a lot of these issues and related ones over like slavery and whether or not war was the only way to end it and these sorts of things. I think Hummel does a great job laying out the arguments and then explaining why he takes the positions that he takes. And not only does it have a great overview of before, during, and after the war, but Hummel also has extensive uh, bibliographical essays, I think at the end of each chapter, where he talks about a lot of you know the, the most important works on each given topic related to the war. 
and, and talks about sort of the historiography of it. So it's a very informative book. I mean, in one book, you're, it's almost like you're getting a bunch of books. Now, I am, as I think I've mentioned a few times before, I am planning on doing a miniseries on the U.S. Civil War in the future. Uh, it might happen sometime in the summer or fall, depending on when I can, I can really get a lot more research under my belt. Because it's one of those things, I know the war pretty well. I've taken multiple college courses as a student just on the Civil War. I've read a bunch of books about it. I've thought a bunch about it. But nonetheless, to do a, a multi-part series along the lines of like what I did with the American Revolution, I still, there's like at least another dozen or two books that I would want to consult to learn all the stuff I don't know before I'd even feel comfortable starting to put together episodes on that. But um, look for that in the future. Before then, though, I am going to do, and, I, and I'm in the middle of research for this one, I am going to do a mini-series on the rise and fall of American slavery. Now, not getting really into the Civil War itself directly that much, because I want to save that for that series. But basically, the history of American slavery, you know, how it got established, how it operated, how it changed over time, how it was different in different regions and in different time periods, because it's a much bigger, more complex subject than you might think if you've never studied it. And in addition, I think there's a lot of valuable insights, because when you look at how slave masters exercised power and domination and hegemony over their slaves, it's a, an exaggerated microcosm of what states do all the time. It's easier to see, it's more blatant, because it's a master or an overseer inflicting this in a very direct, immediate way on a slave. But a lot of the same basic approaches and methodologies are used just in a more widespread yet subtle way when it comes to states controlling and dominating their populations. So anyway, that's, that's another reason I want to do the, the History of Slavery series is because I think there's a lot of valuable insights there in just understanding systems of dominance and control and hegemony. But anyway, if you really want to understand the American Civil War, I don't think that Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men is the only book you should read, but I think it's like the best starting place there possibly could be. It's also a very readable book, if I, if I recall. I, I imagine that I'll probably be quoting from it more than once in my upcoming Civil War miniseries. Next book on my list is Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. The subtitle of this book is the Bush dynasty, the powerful forces that put it in the White House, and what their influence means for America. And this book, Family of Secrets by Russ Baker, I think would make Murray Rothbard very proud because it is a case of power elite history and expose par excellence. It's extensively documented and footnoted and everything. It's not wild, off-the-reservation conspiracy speculation. It is just very, very well-documented, do well well-done research, and I very much tip my hat to Russ Baker for this. Murray Rothbard often pointed to books like The Yankee and Cowboy War as, as a work of power elite history and lamented the fact that more people weren't really looking at history that way, weren't really going into history to try and uncover what are the real hidden motivations and interests and things that are at work that are not the things we often see on the surface as far as like party politics and whatever. I mean, not, not to say that stuff is irrelevant and doesn't play a role, but that there's often deeper things going on as far as behind the scenes interest, whether it's Morgan versus Rockefeller, 
whether it's the Yankee Cowboy War <clears throat> or whether it's some of the stuff that Russ Baker writes about so well in Family of Secrets. Yet again, a book that's on my list, not only because I think it's a great book, but because it really influenced me by coming along at a perfect time. It was probably right around the same time, give or take, you know, a number of months, that I came across three of the books on this list. Family of Secrets, Underground History of American Education, and Creature from Jekyll Island. I came across all three of those books, I think, within the same year, maybe either 08 or 09. And it was at a time where I was rapidly losing the last few bits of statism I had, I had left. I had been a, a, a moderate libertarian for actually since I was a teenager, probably. But it was right around the time I was shedding what was left of my faith in the state that I came across those three books. And it was just like a triple whammy of, of exposing all these different things and, and putting a lot of things together in a way that connect, it connected dots that I had instinctively been suspicious of, but like by, by putting these things together in, in a way that all three of these books did, it really helped me understand, finally, what the real nature of the state and the powers that be and the forces behind it and the forces that benefit from it, what they really are. And in the case of Family of Secrets, I had already just completely lost any last shred of sympathy I had for the Republican Party over the course of George W. Bush's presidency. Because not only did he start multiple disastrous wars, but even in terms of domestic policy, he was a huge government grower. I mean, he was a wonderful, wonderful example. And I think a little bit before I discovered the, the three books I just mentioned, I discovered Crisis and Leviathan as well. And I remember reading Crisis and Leviathan and then saying, wow, that's pretty much George W. Bush's presidency too. And then when I came across Family of Secrets and it put a lot of these things together and really exposed who these people, the Bushes, actually were, which 99% of Americans don't really know, and did it in such a well-researched, well-documented way, that was very important just as much as Creature from Jekyll Island and Underground History of American Education in just severing those last little tiny tenuous links to any any faith in the American government or anything like that and and to the state in general but you know as a, as an American as someone who lives inside of the American tax farm that was my state quote unquote that I thought was like the one good one right so anyway i highly recommend family of secrets it is a very good book it's an absolute page-turner. It's another one, along with Yankee and Cowboy War on this list, that mention the mysterious character George de Morinschild, of whom, like I said, I might do a Patreon bonus episode in the near future. In fact, I'm planning on doing a Patreon bonus episode on him in the near future. Because his story of who he was and the connections he had and whatever, it's just mind-blowing, at least it was to me. The Bush family are just not who most people think they are, they're they're much more connected to the real power elite of America. They're much more connected to corporate banking and military industrial complex businesses, not just the oil industry, although that's true as well. They've been around a lot longer in those circles than most people realize. They've got much deeper connections to American intelligence, including the CIA, than most people realize. And Russ Baker, who is, you know, a very competent journalist, not some wild kook, dug all this stuff up 
Now, the last book on my list is Thaddeus Russell's book, A Renegade History of the United States. And it's not on the list just because he was kind enough to be a guest on my show a little while back. I've been a fan of that book for a long time, probably since basically it came out. And this was maybe a little bit later in my development. I had already become basically an anarchist, but it added a a deeper understanding to me of American history by giving another angle that I also had not really considered um, as deeply before as I should have. And that's the, the angle of what he calls the renegades, the, the outcasts and, and the, in some cases, the criminals and the people that much of mainstream society looks on as the dregs and how important those people have really been to, to defending and enlarging personal freedom in America and how very often it's these, these dregs of society, is in the eyes of most people anyway, that through just doing what they want to do and living the way they want to live oftentimes have a far greater real impact on enlarging personal freedoms, many of which we take for granted today, than the, the, the famed civil rights activists and labor leaders and what have you. And so what Dad does in the book is he goes the next step, the next step beyond Howard Zinn. And I've heard him, he might have even on, on my show said that Howard Zinn was important, uh, an influence on him, an inspiration to him, what have you. But then he eventually decided that Zinn hadn't gone quite far enough because Zinn was still putting forward a fairly, you know, hero centric version, not just Zinn, but the new left generally, um, especially the new left people who were doing social history. They simply put in the new heroes, which were labor leaders, civil rights activists, etc. And while that was an important addition to the American story to take those people into account in a serious way and not just talk about presidents and generals and whatever, that it still was missing a huge part of the picture. It still was missing how a lot of these outcasts and renegades had an impact on American history. And furthermore, it was even missing a lot of important things that even non-renegades have enjoyed and benefited from and so on, basically like pop culture things. A lot of the new left historians, the social historians, still had this very uptight view of a lot of personal behavior and um, leisure time and consumer culture and these sorts of things. And in Renegade history, that rare for, for an academic historian takes the side of pop culture and of consumerism and of leisure and of fun and of enjoyment and tells the story of the people who often at surprisingly great risks, lived the way they wanted to live and kind of were the path breakers of enlarging all of our freedoms that we take for granted. Even if you're a fairly boring, normal person, there's still probably aspects of how you live your life, what kinds of things you do with your spare time, what sorts of uh, entertainment and leisure activities you like to, to enjoy. Even if you're a fairly square person, there's probably still some things in your life that not that long ago would be considered like outlandishly renegade behaviors or outlandishly renegade um, material to consume. So that was a very important book in enlarging how I thought of things and and looked at things in that sphere. So those are my top 10 dangerous American history books that have had the biggest impact on my view of American history and also of history in general. I do want to make a few quick honorable mentions 
things that I think are very worth reading that I would personally highly recommend, but that for one reason or another, I can't quite say were as, as influential on my thinking as the 10 books I just went over. First, of course, and it might surprise you that nothing by him was on my top 10 list, but I'll explain why in a moment. Anything by Murray Rothbard on American history would highly recommend. His Conceived in Liberty on Colonial and Revolutionary America, of course, I referenced a bunch of times in my American Revolution series. He's got um, History of Money and Banking in the United States, I think is the title, which is a big overview of much of American history from, a, from an economic standpoint. He's got some shorter books that are basically essays that are sometimes published as little books. One is uh, Wall Street Banks and American Foreign Policy, very good one related to American history. In addition, there's one by him that I highly recommend called The Betrayal of the American Right, I think is, is the name of it. And it's about how the, the right wing in American politics, which used to be more libertarian and more anti-war, was during the Cold War taken over and hijacked by a bunch of big government war hawks calling themselves conservatives. And, of course, Rothbard had personal experience in a lot of this because he was involved in the quote-unquote old right and then you know, watched that get crushed by the William F. Buckley and neocon new right. So that's another one that is, you know, almost on this list. Now, the reason I didn't put any Rothbard books on the list, though, is because it was very hard to pick any one that's been more influential on me than another. But I'll just say you can't go wrong with anything he wrote that has to do with American history. I occasionally will disagree with Rothbard on some specific point or argument, but for the most part, when it comes to the big picture, I find myself almost always in agreement with him. Next honorable mention, T.H. Breen, American Insurgents, American Patriots, which I referenced several times during my American Revolution series as well. That one is a really cool one because it looks at the troublemakers who got the American Revolution started, and it looks at the actual grassroots rather than at the founding fathers. And it shows you how, especially in the first year or two of the revolution, the leaders weren't really in charge. The people were leading themselves in a very decentralized, bottom-up sort of fashion. And it was only later that a lot of the guys who get known as the founding fathers came in, co-opted it, and, and used the movement for their own purposes. That one didn't make the top ten list simply because of it didn't radically change my paradigm. It just added to my knowledge of, of what I kind of already knew, but it, it deepened the knowledge of that a lot more. Next honorable mention is The Costs of War, edited by John Denson. That's a great collection of scholarly essays um, critical of America's wars, particularly in the 20th century. And a lot of great pieces in there. That one didn't make the list just because it's a collection. I decided, eh, I mean, there there are some great chapters in there. But I wanted my top ten list to all be like unified books rather than collections of works by multiple authors. And then my last last honorable mention is a series of, I think it's three books, by Philip Birch Jr. Birch spelled B-U-R-C-H, Philip Birch Jr., and the series is, again, I think it's three parts if I remember right, entitled Elites in American History. And it's just a very detailed history of the American power elite pretty much from, I think, from the Revolution all the way through, like, the 1970s. And, I mean, he digs into everybody's backgrounds. He's looking at the, the corporate foundations, the, the charities that these people serve on, 
all the all the stuff the the private clubs then how that interlocks with government and the military i mean it is just an absolutely extensive piece of a very solid scholarship on identifying who the different factions and individuals of the american power elite have been from again about a 200 year period I, i think from the revolution through the 1970s so not always the the most interesting read but Man, is it informative and detailed. So anyway, I hope you found my list of top 10 dangerous U.S. history books interesting and helpful and informative. I hope you'll check some of those out if you've not already, and some of those honorable mentions as well. Remember that knowledge really is power, and the more you really know about what's happened in the past and what's happening in the present, the more you'll be able to be tactically intelligent in deciding what you want to do with your life and your resources going forward into the future. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, You'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.